Hi, everybody. This is Sierra. And this is Matt. And welcome to Monkey Business, your favorite podcast about primates and PhDs. something about uh, research articles and, and journals and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So one of the things I've been noticing being in my first year and I feel like I am a little bit behind on some of like the more current literature when it comes to certain topics. And so I've been spending a lot of time just looking up as many articles as I can and reading and reading and reading, it feels like. A lot of reading. There's a yeah. lot of reading as a PhD, for oh, sure. Yes. And I myself am like a pretty slow reader, especially when it comes to things that I'm unfamiliar with because I find myself stopping and trying to look up certain things and certain topics that I am have no idea what it means and yeah. things like that. And so, and then you kind of need to figure out what that means. And then you finally get back to your article that you're reading. And so it's been a little bit of a struggle, I would say for myself. Um, and so I was, you know, telling our advisor this and she's really nice about it saying that that's totally understandable and everything. Sometimes starting up discussion groups with people is helpful when you're talking about more general things and I don't know, what do you do when you're like looking for papers or trying to get through a topic and trying to like catch up, I guess, I think is a big thing for me. Yeah. Well, I definitely will say that I'm a slow reader too. We both are slow readers, which is maybe some hope for those out there who are worried that their reading speed would inhibit them from being able to do a research PhD, but it's definitely not the case. You just have to make more of a effort. It's not like I can just sit down and read papers really quickly, especially when these papers are dense and like, you know, they're science papers. So you've got to kind of understand and, and critically analyze them. The way that I go about usually doing papers, I think you are definitely taking more of a broad approach. There are a lot of parts of the literature that I honestly have not even really read into. I think the way that I usually do is I start with review papers, try and find review papers on Google Scholar. And I honestly try and take the most recent ones because, you know, they are going to have the most up-to-date sources. And then from there, I kind of just read it as is, and I get my highlighters out and I start marking stuff down, specifically circling certain sources mm -hmm. that especially, you know, when you read a review paper, you'll read something like, oh, they'll make a claim and they'll cite the source that made that claim and, and found that. I usually will circle this and be like, oh, this is a paper that I want to read. I want to get dive more into this kind of topic. So, for example... I'm working on reading into prosocial behavior, which I've kind of now gotten up to date on everything. But when I first started out, I found the two most recent reviews of prosocial behavior in primates and in other animals. Um, and sometimes in our field, it's, it's important to get a review on humans as well. And then I go through and I look at their sources. Sometimes, if you're lucky, they'll have a table that has all the sources in there. <laughs> and then from there, I just start looking up those sources and start reading them and I try and kind of, based on the title and based on the abstract, I determine which ones are the most important that I should start with. And then 
from those though, I try not to get down too much rabbit hole. If I find a really good source in one of those, I'll write it down and then, you know, try and add it to my reading list. Um, but that's usually kind of how I go about it. Reading list. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I think I have a, for my master's, which I'm working on, I think I have a folder in there. It's called references. And then there's like a folder within that folder. That's like priority references and then like printed references that I've like printed physical copies of. And then oh, like a, way to do it. a folder of references that say like, please print that I need to print next time I get access to a printer. And so I kind of like have like a bunch of sources there and, and, just because I'm also, I like to read a physical document, so I yeah, usually try and same. read them and print them out, which, you know, I should do be better at, though, because it'll save some trees in the in the process. But that's kind of how I go about doing it. Do you feel like the review papers, so you were mentioning that you kind of start with a review paper and then kind of work your way, mm -hmm. I guess, more specifically, depending on what direction the review paper or what papers you read in that they cited in the review paper. Do you feel that those review papers give you a good sense of the background theory behind where the field is at a moment? Yeah, I think that I think that it can. I don't think that every review paper does it. And it also totally depends on the review paper, right? And what the review paper's purpose is. For example, it might be a review paper that's specifically looking at the different methodologies that have been used to test a certain phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And then that paper is going to tell you a lot about like the methods that have been used in previous experiments, but it might not get at the mechanism to something. But you also might have a paper that is specifically looking at a mechanism or making a claim about a mechanism of something. Like I know with decision-making, there is like a review on risk. And obviously like there's still even some debate about risk and, and risk aversion. But that's the that's the point and the perspective they're taking. And so I think that it's good, just like everything, just like everything is good in moderation. I think that it's good to re read those reviews in moderation, but also to take just like a multidisciplinary approach and to read multiple reviews on the same topic. Because usually, unless it's a very niche topic, there's going to be multiple reviews. And even in those reviews, there is going to be an opinion of some sort presented. And so I think by reading multiple of those helps you kind of form a more complete picture of a topic. And then from there, you can kind of dive into different topics. So right. like more in depth and specifically like different point of views. Yeah. Yeah. About, it's tricky though. Yeah, yeah for it sure. Is tricky. It is hard though, because you want to critically analyze them as a scientist too. You don't mm -hmm. just want to read a paper and then be like, okay, that's what it is. Cause I think that's one thing yeah. that I learned in a PhD just because someone publishes a paper on it doesn't mean that that is fact. There's a lot of interpretation that happens in science. And so it's important to kind of read those papers critically and mm -hmm. be the scientist that you're training to be and, and, and question, you know, were the controls sufficient to make the claims that the authors are making or all those sorts of things. And so, and kind of looking at the nuances within each paper, but that takes a lot of time. So yes. it's just a constant, constant, I won't say struggle, but it's a constant pursuit that you have to be involved in when you're in a PhD, specifically a research PhD. Yeah. One thing that I was noticing too recently, I was, or I have been reading a lot of papers on uh, decision-making mm -hmm. and one thing that, you know, I find that the threshold that I struggle with is I'll be doing good, I'll be doing good. And then I get to, okay, now let's talk about like the physical mechanism of this decision making. And then they go into a mathematical model and I'm just gone. Yeah. Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. 
Yeah. And I think for some people like that analytical modeling side is really important. And, and some people kind of really get into that. Like I remember I was talking with Meg uh, Sosnowski, who's in our, uh, one of our senior graduate students in our lab. And she said the same thing. She's like, she doesn't really, she's not a really huge fan of the modeling, but it's important. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we get those papers and it's kind of like, Ooh, I don't know how well I'm going to read this, but yeah. I think I read one paper and I was just, I read the first couple of sentence of just the intro. So this is just the background. And I was like, I'm already lost. So I don't even know what to do now. But well, especially when you look at the decision-making too, I mean, a lot of those, especially when you get into like the behavioral economics of it, you start bringing in economic modeling and it's like, right over my head. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, a whole nother topic that it's like, you're trying to catch up on and I think a lot of research nowadays is trying to become a little bit more interdisciplinary, which is great because you're going to get farther and a more in-depth view of what you're looking at. But what I tend to struggle with is, you know, trying to understand where the other disciplines are coming from. So like in our lab, we deal with a lot of behavioral economics, which is, you know, founded in economic theory, which is not necessarily where psychology classes will go or biology or biology. So it's a whole nother realm. And then, and then you're trying to look at the physical mechanism. So you have like the biology behind it, which like sometimes it's really straightforward and kind of, you can follow that a little bit, but sometimes it just like right over your head when it comes. I know someone was also in our lab talking to me about like the genetics of certain things and didn't know a lot in terms of genetics. And when you start reading genetics papers and it starts getting down to like naming genes, the gene (laughs) and all of that, you start kind of getting lost in some of those acronyms. So I can kind of see how that gets difficult too. Our advisor said to me, she said that um, once you start building that framework and start learning more within the field, you start getting faster at reading or like better at understanding what's going on. And I definitely think that's true, especially like when we were taking our cognitive psychology class, we were reading a lot of papers that seemed very like everywhere and sporadic. But then you start after reading more and more, you start realizing how they are connected and things like that. But one, two, the other thing is I, I think being efficient with your time in that when you're reading a scientific article, so it's not all about reading every single word on that paper, although it's all important. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I found that the main takeaway of the paper is all I really care about. And I don't really need to know about any more than that. And so sometimes if you see a paper that's cited often, obviously it's always important, like I said, to be a critical Mm -hmm. scientist and analyze studies and making sure that what they're claiming is uh true but you know if if a paper is consistently cited for making this claim by multiple different authors not just the authors that did the original paper which will happen sometimes (laughs) it it's in a lot of ways it's kind of a a freebie because you can kind of read the abstract read the discussion of the paper see kind of their results and judge and and just take it from what it's worth and not have to read all the nitty-gritty details in a paper Mm -hmm. so i think that's another way too that i found there's a lot of papers where i'll just read it and take away the main takeaway and be like, okay, I keep that in the back of my mind. And usually for me, it involves highlighting the main takeaways. And then, you know, skipping over some of the intro 
which is just background information, which I usually get from the yeah. review paper anyways. Which, and uh, after a, a lot of papers, you start realizing it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. The intros of all the same papers in the same field are, are very similar, just worded in the author's mm-hmm. own words. So um, you usually can skip that. And sometimes the intros are really long. Mm-hmm. You know, if you firmly believe the study has a good methodology, sometimes thing, you can skip over the methods. But One thing I really noticed is I really like some of the last paragraphs of the intro, though, because they go over the methodology yep. in a, like a condensed way, which is really nice. And they usually present it very clear and simple. Yep. And they usually present their goals to like, mm-hmm. you know, we have it's never been done in this species or there's a gap in the research. Thus, we're going to test tufted capuchin monkeys yeah. using this paradigm. And we chose this because this and we'll accomplish goals x y and z and it's like that's on the last paragraph of the intro and that is really nice yeah i like those well let me ask you this though I see a lot in especially fields that are psychology, which we read a lot about, and cognitive science for that matter too. You get a lot of papers that have opposing views. So Mm -hmm. you'll get like different results in many different papers. How do you kind of parse apart to see where those differences might occur or I guess how do you handle that? Yeah, I think – so I think the first thing is we are only – going into our second year of our PhDs. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe, I obviously am coming from a place of only being a second year of my PhD. I firmly believe that that's a big part of what doing a PhD is. I think that Mm -hmm. that is learning how to be that scientist and finding where you stand on issues like that. So it's easy for us to like read a paper. We'll just, you know, I, and like, like I've said in, in, in previous episodes or I research post-social behavior, which is a debated topic, especially in the primate world and in the non-human world. And so there's a lot of opposing views on that. And so you come across papers that have a lot of opposing views. And I think you just have to sift through them. You know, you have to obviously analyze them as a critical scientist and ask the obvious questions like were there controls? Did the controls show what they were actually intending to show, all sorts of those. But I think once you get past that, there's still papers out there that are going to have conflicting views and have conflicting findings. And that's science. Mm -hmm. So I think that, I think just over time, you'll come to learn the nuances of what it's like and, and, and how to decipher those differences. And then honestly, it's all about a forming an opinion. And I think people think that science is all about fact, but I think there's a lot more opinion that goes into science. And you'll yeah. start seeing that between research groups and published papers. You'll see there is a lot of opinion out there. Like, for example, and this is a very popular example, uh, Franz de Waal, who was uh, our advisor's advisor. Um, so I guess our grand advisor in a little bit of ways. He tends to be uh, a little bit more anthropomorphic. And some people have a problem with that, but that's where he stands and that's his style. And he has a lot of reasons for that. And there's a lot of valid reasons for that. And he's willing to defend himself. So I think it's all about looking at those studies and you come across those and you have to take them both for a grain of salt. And, you know, maybe one paper is not great and one of them is great. And then it's like, okay, well, this is obvious. You know, this paper is more reliable, but I don't think that's always the case. And so I think it's just more about 
getting as much information as possible and then making your own conclusion about it as the scientist you are. And I think that as we get older and as we get more advanced in the program, we'll find better ways to kind of decipher which ones we more align with. That doesn't mean either one is right or wrong. It's just more about finding where we align with the research and on which side we stand on. And um, like how that takes your research because that will ultimately like influence how you approach your next experiments. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the other thing too, and this is something that's been evident from evident to me from Sarah, knowing the people who publish the papers is a big deal too. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that right now I, I did not come from a private field, so all these names are really new to me. But, you know, to someone like Sarah who's been in the field, she knows she knows different researchers and she knows and she can put a face to names and so mm-hmm. Just like uh, you can know if your friend has certain political views or your friend has certain opinions about cleanliness of their home or, you know, certain hygiene opinions, like just like that, I think that you can kind of start to learn that about other scientists too. And so I think that's something that just comes with time and through networking and, and reading papers too, right? You know, you might see a paper and like you might read Franz papers and you might read a bunch of them and be like, this guy is more anthropomorphic. Mm-hmm. Whereas like you read somebody else's papers and it's like, they kind of take that all out and you start to kind of learn that stuff, but that's only going to come with time. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's kind of the way that we do it. But I think the the silver lining is, I think that's one of the main purposes of getting a PhD is being able to right. read into that kind of stuff and being able to gain the skills to decipher those sort of nuances of a research paper, whether it's a review, whether it's a scientific experiment, whether it's observations, whether it's a pop science book, you can kind of start to learn and and decipher all that sort of stuff. How about do you find your papers? I use Google Scholar, which is a phenomenal resource. (laughs) Something that I learned for people who are kind of getting into this, because this is a skill to be able to find research papers. At UNC, UNC's library, where, where I went to undergrad, UNC had a, a phenomenal library search system and I could find everything through there. So when I came to Georgia State and I lost access to that, I was not familiar with the Georgia State Library. I'm sure it's great, but I just immediately went back to Google Scholar. Something that somebody taught me, when you go to Google Scholar and you look up something, if you click on it and you don't have access, there's a little button that has like at the very bottom on the search that says like, see all nine versions. And you can click on that and there's different links that'll have the same paper. So if you're looking for a specific paper that you can't have access to, you can actually see different versions of it, which is kind of cool. Someone in our lab taught me that and I've used it and it's very helpful. So that's kind of how I find stuff. But a lot of times what it, what it involves me doing is reading the review papers, usually multiple of them, mm-hmm. finding those sources that are pertaining to me and specifically looking at the authors of those papers, seeing if the names sound familiar, but then also looking at the titles of the papers because the title tells a lot about what a research paper is about, right? So mm-hmm. say I'm trying to find a paper about decision-making in primates that specifically relates to amb- ambiguity aversion in primates, which is this idea that you're taking some sort of risk, but you don't really know the odds of the decision that you're making. So it's ambiguous, which humans are very averse to ambiguous decisions when you don't know the odds of a decision. So say I'm looking at, I could go to Google Scholar and I could search up ambiguity, primate, decision-making keywords and see what pops up. But oftentimes you can kind of see in review, it might say something like, oh, you know, we found, there's been a handful of studies that found 
primates, you know, like to avoid ambiguous decisions. And then you look at those sources, you go to the re- references, you find those, I literally highlight them. And then I just yeah. go I on the online, yeah. <laughs> I go on the online PDF and I copy that title, mm-hmm. not necessarily the authors. Cause I think Google scholar gets a little bit confused. Sometimes I just copy the title, yeah. paste it in there. It usually pops up and I try my best to find that. So that's usually how I go about it. But if I don't have a review paper, I usually go to Google scholar and I type in my few keywords, you know, ambiguity, um, aversion, start primate. with like the most basic and kind of yeah. work your yeah. way into more specific. Yeah, for sure. Like kind of the theme here. Yeah. So that's kind of how I go about it. Um, what about book chapters and chap and like books and things like that? The problem I have been having with book chapters and books is getting access to those. So then I end up not yes. reading them because I don't get access or I have to especially because we started school when COVID was like at its peak mm-hmm. or maybe not its peak, but still very Pretty dang close to it. Yeah. <laughs> very predominant. Wave so, two. If there was ever a wave two, it might've just been one big wave and we were <laughs> in the middle of it. Who knows? We were there in school, starting school. And so what that also added was having to go to campus, which we weren't on campus very often at this, at that point. So it's like, I ended up just skipping a lot of book chapters because, mm-hmm. you know, that access was kind of diminished. I've I've found that book chapters that you're I agree with you, they're sometimes harder to gain access to, but they are also kind of stand up there with the review papers and they're really helpful and they mm-hmm. honestly usually cohesively combine research into a more succinct form. Like for example, when I was looking into prosocial behavior for the first time, we have Meg, who I mentioned earlier, and Sarah have a book chapter. And this is Sarah Brosnan, yeah, by the way. Yes, Sarah Brosnan, our advisor, have a book chapter on personal behavior. But I couldn't find that book chapter anywhere, so I, I had to email Meg. And, of course, she's an author on it, so she had the book chapter. Right. So it is hard. But, but it was a great book chapter, and it was good to read, and it kind of quickly, succinctly summarized things and cited some very key studies. So that was nice. So I do find book chapters are really helpful, but their access is usually limited. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy to find them on Google Scholar. And because I'm me and I like to print stuff out, having a book chapter is sometimes really hard because it wants to try and print the whole book (laughs) or it won't let you download the whole book or the book is like 500 megabytes, which I don't really want to download onto my computer. And so then you get into this whole thing where it's harder to kind of read and you have to read through Google books and it's harder to highlight and all that sort of stuff. So Mm -hmm. they're good for, they're good though, if you can gain access to them and get past all that kind of stuff. So one thing that actually someone told me about last week um, as a little pro tip for being in the field is that if you can't get access to an article and you know who the author is, email the author because they have that article and they are more than likely will just give it to you because I mean, they're not getting anything extra from you reading the article through the journal or reading mm-hmm. it through the version that they sent you. It's not a difference for them. Yeah. I remember at one time in undergrad when I was doing a project on, I was actually looking at like big cats and their behavior in captivity. And there was this awesome study that, but it wasn't a very well-known study. It was a pretty, it was a pretty awesome study that did something that was very similar to what I did. And so I wanted to be able to read that and see, you know, how they formatted their paper and to also see what the claims they were making and I could not find that paper anywhere available. And I, I actually ended up doing the same thing. I emailed the author and nice. she immediately, I think within a week, emailed me back. I was like, here it is. Just don't, you know, don't distribute it anywhere. Mm-hmm. But like, here, read it, give it a read. And I was like, wow, that was 
you see, I might need to do yeah. that more often. So yeah. So that was one pro tip that I got like last week, which is like, oh, this is excellent. Yeah. Anyways, well, that is all that there is. And we hope that you enjoyed listening to the episode. We would like to just say real quickly that the episode was written and directed by Sierra Simmons and Matthew Babb of Georgia State University and edited by Oliver Eddy. And we will see you guys again next week for another episode of Monkey Business. Cue the outro music. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.